between my freshman and sophomore years of high school, I transferred schools. I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian bubble, cut off from the rest of the world in most ways. We didn't go to movies, we didn't watch much TV, we certainly didn't listen to music, well, besides hymns. The church I was a part of imploded during my freshman year, and as a result of that, I found myself moving from the small Christian school run by the church to Chaparral High School. I went from a graduating class of six to a graduating class of around 500. And if you're thinking that must have been a jarring transition, you have no idea. I felt completely lost. And not just because I didn't know the culture, but also because while my peers in high school were chasing after girls, I had no desire to do that. I was struggling to figure out what was going on with me. Was this a normal thing that every guy experienced? Or was something different about me? For me, a saving grace in high school was discovering Young Life. Young Life is an evangelical youth outreach organization, and it was the first place I had ever shown up and felt like I was loved just for being me, not for what I could do, not for following the Christian rules, but simply for existing. I had a Young Life leader named Chris who really changed my life in high school. I was someone who was deeply insecure. I didn't play sports, couldn't even throw a ball, and felt so out of place among guys my age. And yet Chris just loved me and wanted to hang out with me despite all of that. We were both musicians. We both played guitar. So we spent a lot of time just playing songs together. One time we burned a CD, took it to our local blockbuster. Yes, this was a very long time ago. And asked the guy working there if we could play it over the loudspeakers. And so we wandered around Blockbuster, listening to the sounds of our guitars. And after I graduated from high school, I really wanted to offer that same experience to other people that Chris had provided to me. I wanted other high school students who didn't fit in, who didn't feel like they belonged, to know that they were loved by God so deeply. And so I became a Young Life leader. There was a small problem The leadership covenant that I signed said that I would agree not to live a, quote, homosexual lifestyle, which I didn't think applied to me. I certainly wasn't dating anyone. I had never even kissed a person up until that point. I knew that I was gay, but no one else did. So maybe this could work out. So I jumped into it and... I loved it. From day one, I felt like there was so much meaning in the work that I was doing. Yet keeping the secret was starting to take a toll on me. I didn't understand why God would let this happen to me after I had spent my entire life faithfully following him. Every night, I would pace around my neighborhood, praying to God, asking him to change me, to make me straight, and nothing was happening. I wondered if I was really a bad person, a monster, someone who deserved this. What had gone wrong? It felt like I was living two different lives. The the public life where I was 
engaged in ministry and leading worship and talking to kids about Jesus, and then my internal life where I was deeply wrestling with my own sense of identity. And so at 20 years old, I found myself at a leadership weekend for Young Life at a camp called Lost Canyon. And as my friend Tony led worship from the stage, I broke down crying. Like this was the hardest that I've sobbed probably in my entire life. I knew I couldn't keep going without telling somebody this part of who I am, this deep struggle I was having. So I grabbed my team leader and we went into this tiny little office inside the kitchen at Lost Canyon. And I sat on the counter with my knees pulled up to my chest, sobbing, and told him I was gay. I didn't want to be. I didn't know how to change. I was convinced this was the end of ministry for me. But he surprised me. He said, I know you. I trust you. The work you're doing with high school students is amazing. And he kept that secret with me. That moment for me was huge. Naming the thing that was tearing me up inside didn't eliminate my sense of shame, but it was the start of a journey. Lots of LGBTQ people deal with shame around their sexuality. And the good news, friends, is lots of us beat it. So let's talk a bit about shame and a story from the Bible, a story that has nothing to do with gay people, yet has been weaponized against us for far too long. I'm Steve McCarthy. And I'm Alicia Johnston. And this is Open Bible Podcast. I vividly remember one day sitting in chapel at seminary. So this is the Seventh-day Adventist seminary, and it's full of hundreds of seminarians. And we're listening to someone preach a sermon, and she's preaching on Genesis chapter 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And just as an aside, as she's describing the story, she says, and a group of gay men came up to rape the visitors who were in Lot's home. And I remember sitting there looking around and wondering, do they think it's okay that she just said that? That she just described these rapists in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah as a group of gay men, like like a gang of gay men who are just like marauding across the countryside, raving people. That was basically the image she gave. Yeah. And this experience of listening to this sermon and so many others just really culminated in the very clear message that I was not safe and okay in the church. And that's despite the fact that I bet a bunch of people who were listening to that sermon thought that that was a ridiculous idea, but nobody said anything. Everyone Mm -hmm. just kind of let it pass. And I, I'm not sure I ever heard someone vehemently say, like, really clearly say, like, it's not okay to say that these rapists were a bunch of gay men. But you would hear people say that from time to time. And it just so clearly sent the message to me that the feelings you are having of attraction towards women are not something you can talk about. They're socially, they're not going to be acceptable or okay in this situation. You're going to find yourself constantly defending your faith and your Christianity because 
people very easily associate the kinds of feelings you're having with things like gang rape. Right. If someone's going to come in and say your desire to love and be loved is the exact same thing as gang rape, like that's an association you build in your mind and it can be incredibly shaming. Yeah. And you will sometimes hear conservative Christians who would never say something like that. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, you know, there's a differentiation between sexual orientation and sexual behavior. But those lines are not like always clearly made within church culture and Christian spaces. And they're not clearly upheld. I mean, I've I've definitely heard the same exact people who will make that distinction in, in one place kind of make assumptions in the other place and describe people who are gay as as and they'll associate them with like specific behaviors that are like awful and terrible. There is not a sense of safety in most Christian spaces that even if you are being celibate or not having any kind of relationship with people of the same gender, like that doesn't mean that you are safe. And that experience of of feeling like you have to hide yourself because it's not safe, that is the essential psychological experience of shame. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden after they'd sinned and they didn't want to be seen and they tried to cover themselves. Like it's that experience of shame. And for for those of us who are in those spaces and realize we have a sense of attraction to to people of the same gender, you don't even have to do anything. Yeah. There's no like sin that's committed and you socially have that experience of feeling that you need to hide. And that is the experience of shame. In order to better understand the experience of shame among LGBTQ people, we called up our friend Matthias Roberts. My name is Matthias Roberts. I am a therapist based in Seattle, Washington. Matthias is host of the popular podcast Queerology and author of the upcoming book Beyond Shame. A really easy definition, and this is one that Brene Brown uses in a lot of her work. Uh, She is a shame researcher and storyteller uh, who kind of has brought the conversation around shame into more public work. But she defines shame as a distinction from guilt. Um, So guilt is, I did something bad, whereas shame is, I am something bad. So so it's kind of that feeling of, I'm I'm a terrible person, I'm awful. Like Those are kind of the voices of shame. Um, It makes us close in on ourselves. Uh, It makes us turn away from people. where guilt kind of gives us this desire to reconcile something, to repair something, shame makes us want to just run away and hide under hide under the covers. Um, that's kind of the easiest way. It's it's also it's it's a um, it's a full body experience. Shame is not just an emotion, but is something that um, works both neuro, neurolo- neurologically <laughs> and biologically. Um, so. It hijacks our brain, um, and it also works within our bodies as well. So tell me how the church even inadvertently teaches people to feel ashamed about sex or gender or orientation. So this is a really kind of complicated thing, because I think anytime we start naming things, there's always exceptions. Uh, So as as I talk, like people will probably be able to hear, well, what about this? Or, but what about this? And and so I'm going to try to describe 
kind of a swath of people. Um, and with, with the acknowledgement, like there may be other people who don't have these experiences. Um, but, but I think anytime we set up kind of this idea of, of normative sexuality, uh, so whether that be heterosexuality um, or when it comes to gender, um, being cisgender, uh, when, when we kind of set that up as being the one and only right way to do sexuality and gender, then anyone who falls outside of that norm is going to feel shame. It's it's almost inevitable. Or when some branches of the church kind of try to teach this prescriptive morality around sexuality and gender, around sexual orientation and gender identity, they're really setting up <laughs> an environment of shame for pretty much everyone. Because because the reality is, is like sexuality and gender, they're spectrums. And so even people who do kind of fall within these, these quote unquote norms, they don't like not everyone is, is quote unquote perfect in within those norms. Um, and so whether you're far outside of the lines or whether you're in the lines a little bit, like there is going to be sh- like a shame element of, of like, well, I'm not the right kind of man or I don't experience sexuality the right way. Um, and I think our theology and our teachings about sexuality don't account for the vast spectrum that is, that is present um, within sexuality and gender. So I think anytime there's an assumption that that heterosexuality or being cisgender, being the gender that you were assigned as birth or identifying as a gender you were assigned as, as at birth, um, that that is the right way, that gets built into kind of the subconscious conversation. Uh, so it can it can be just subtle little things. So so for example, recently I was I was in a conversation with someone. And they, I don't think they have even any memory of saying this, but, but they said something about like, well, you know, like the, the biblical uh, teachings on sexuality or the, or the biblical model of sexuality in talking to me in a way that was kind of contrasting what I believed. And it, it was such a, a brief passing moment in the conversation, but like that was so deeply invalidating <laughs> because I, I mean, I wanted to to say like, well, no, 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 no. Like what I believe is biblical too. Like we're just coming to the text in a different way. We have different understandings, but it, but it can feel like a, a weaponization almost of, well, I believe the right way you don't. Um, and, and that gets that, that permeates almost the atmosphere uh, in a way that, that can be so subtle and yet so deeply invalidating. So we're talking about uh, the story of Sodom today in Genesis 19. Um, And I remember, so for me, you know, being a teenager, going to church, being closeted, um, like the very first word I ever associated with gay people was monsters. Um, And that that just caused me to go and hide. And, uh, you know, I couldn't point to a specific person or conversation where that happened, but it was just the overall teaching that I was experiencing that was causing me to receive this message. And I think a lot of that kind of conversation comes from this story um, where they would say, if you take like a very rudimentary look at the text, people might say, Oh God destroyed this city because it was full of gay men. 
Um, which once you dive into the text, that's not at all what's happening. But I'm curious, like, have you seen either the story or other texts in the Bible, like weaponized against uh, queer people? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. And and I think this story, like Sodom and Gomorrah, is kind of the, almost the quintessential story that, that people use uh, because it is such kind of a dramatic story. Like, there's so much that happens in that text. Um, and, and like you said, like, uh, kind of the, the accepted reading you know, in a lot of, of, of churches is, is exactly what you said, that God destroyed the city because of homosexuality. Uh, and I, I remember, I think I was an undergrad, uh, and, and kind of really starting to dive into theology, dive into what I believed about these passages and, and, and kind of ran across, people saying like, wait a second, this, this isn't actually what the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is about at all. Like, in fact, we have in the rest of scripture, like some pretty clear things that are said about what the sin of Sodom actually was. Um, and I remember bringing that to my dad and saying, Hey dad, like, did you know this? Like, did you know, like the sin of Sodom wasn't actually homosexuality? Like, and, and I, I mean, I, I think a little bit naively thought like, it would be this mind blowing thing to my dad. Um, <laughs> and it, it wasn't like my dad was like, no, 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 no. Like sure. Scripture says that it was in hospitality, but it was also homosexuality. Um, and I remember how kind of deflated I was in that moment. I mean, it, it kept that text as a weapon for me for, for another couple years that I really had to kind of wrestle with this sense of like, what if, what if my dad is right? What if these churches are right? Like what if homosexuality is the actual sin um, in these texts? And, and and the reality is it's not. Um, But that messaging is so strong um, that, that when we use it and then we can point to these dramatic stories in scripture saying like fire is raining from heaven, on you and it will rain on you because you are gay like or you may be turned into a pillar of salt or whatever like whatever people say i mean that is some powerful stuff um and and i mean it turns into shame that that message of who i am is bad um bad enough to be destroyed by fire and brimstone um oh that's some dark stuff wondering um would you be open to maybe diving a little bit more into your own personal story um do you remember any early moments of experiencing shame around your sexuality and and what was that like i mean i remember probably when i was 11 or 12 like kind of when i was first starting to realize I, i didn't have this language for it but realizing that i was attracted to men um I knew the word homosexuality because it had been talked about in church. Uh, and I think, I, I mean, I had some kind of suspicion around, oh, that might be what I'm experiencing. And I was at a summer camp 
11 or 12 years old. And someone in front of me, in the pew in front of me, had this Bible that was called the Extreme Teen Bible. And <laughs> it was this, this super cool Bible that at the front of it had all of these like questions and then answers in the form of, these are the verses you can go to. So the questions would be like, what does the Bible teach about sex? What does the Bible teach about whatever? And and I remember glancing at that and seeing that there was a question that said, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? And I was like, oh my gosh, I need to get this Bible. Like I need to figure this out. So I like saved my money and bought this $15 Bible. And when it got to my house, I like waited till everyone in my family was gone. And I remember opening up this Bible and and finding that question, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? And it pointed to uh, Leviticus. And I remember opening it up and and going to those verses in Leviticus that, that say, men who lie with men should be stoned. And sitting in that chair and being terrified, like, because... I, I knew, like, this isn't something that I'm ch- choosing. Like, these feelings aren't something that I have voluntary control over. And so, th- something must be really wrong with me. Um, th- that's kind of the first memory that I have of, oh no, like, <laughs> I'm going to hell. <laughs> and I, can, I don't have any control over it. I had this sense of, if anyone ever finds out about this no one will want to be friends with me. Like, I I will lose everything. Um, I was terrified of telling other guys my age about it. Like, I I was convinced, like, if these guys find out that I'm attracted to men, they will beat me to a pulp. Like, I was, I mean, so terrified of of violence against me. Um, I don't really know where that came from, other than, probably Matthew Shepard, like (laughs) looking back on it now. Um, And so as I had experiences of of starting to tell people who were safe, uh, people who I trusted and that turned out to be safe. uh, I mean, I remember the first time I I told a guy who was my best friend in undergrad. And again, I was fully expecting him to just get up and punch me. Um, And he didn't, he got up and gave me a hug and said, I love you so much. Like, and at that time, I was still thinking, like, I have to be single. I have to be celibate. Um, and, and so he was like, let's he's like, let's get through this together. Like, let's figure out how I can help you with that. And he was super straight. Um, <laughs> so there, there was no, like, sexual tension there. But just having someone who could come alongside me in that and, and kind of share that, quote, unquote, burden at the time uh, with me relieved so much shame. Like, it felt so good. So, so as I walked through undergrad, I, I went to like a, a pretty conservative Christian college. Um, that was when I really started to kind of wrestle with what do I believe about this and what am I going to do with it? Uh, so, so my first year I started going to therapy, I went in wanting X guy therapy. Like that's specifically what I requested was like change my sexual orientation. Um, and yeah, so he said, sexual orientation doesn't change. Like it, if it does, it happens incredibly rarely. We can't count on that happening. Uh, so he's like, our work will be, how do you accept this part of yourself and then live as a faithful Christ follower? And then he said like, you didn't choose this. Um, those two things, like huge burden off my shoulders. 
as I started telling people and, and having these experiences of people still wanting to be in relationship with me, people still loving me, uh, that was taking shame off every single time. Started coming out, having experiences of people accepting me, fully came out, lost a few people, but overwhelmingly the experience was very positive. Uh, seeing like, oh, I can actually live a life <laughs> can actually have friends like all these things that i grew up believing like if anyone finds out about this like this is such a grave sin i will be alone forever um all that turned out not to be true which then freed me up to start working with my theology and start working with okay if people aren't gonna throw me out i wonder if god will throw me out like and it took me a few years to really kind of work through that uh, and, and arrive at a place of realizing like, no, no, God, God won't. God loves me and loves this part of me so much. So like Justin Lee's book, Torn, uh, which, which came out, I think my senior year of undergrad, like that was the first story I ever read of someone who grew up in a very similar context as me who had made that journey. That book affected me so much. I was like, wait a second. There are other people out there who hold scripture to the same high regard that I do, who've discovered like God's love is so much bigger than what they had been taught. So it was those stories, those stories then started freeing me up to like searching out the actual like theological arguments. So I tried to find like every academic book I could find Every like I, I read so much on both sides of is this right? Is this wrong? Where are the arguments? And and it, it took me like three full years of kind of reading these heavy <laughs> academic texts, um, which I don't think is a unique experience to me. Like I think so many queer people <laughs> dive into like academia to kind of try to figure these things out. Um but after three years of that, I kind of realized, like, I can believe whoever I want to believe. Like, all of these arguments feel pretty sound. Um, so why don't I believe the one that actually frees me up uh, to be myself, uh, to be me, the one that, that gives me a picture of God that I can rest and trust? Um, and, and once I kind of made that decision, uh, it, it freed up so much like it was a really beautiful thing that really speaks to the fact that as much as we need to study the text that mentions same-sex behavior in the bible we also need to be talking about the verses that demonstrate the character of god to us as well who god is and what god is like is such an important part of this conversation right right and and i think that ties into shame so much because I think our picture of who God is really starts filtering down into our theology. So if, if we believe that God hates us, if we believe that scripture teaches God hates us, if we believe that we are dirt um, worms uh, that are just waiting for God to come and rescue us, but he still hates us uh, even after we're rescued, like that, that kind of I don't, I don't want to put labels on who believes that, um, but that is a stream of theology that is out there. Like, then that's going to affect our shame like, <laughs> so much. Um, or if we believe that God deeply loves us, that, that God is in the, the, the work of redemption, 
uh, out of his, out of their divine love for us, um, that's going to change things too. And, and ultimately, that was the God I decided on, the God that I've experienced. Like, God's love is what makes this world turn. about Matthias Roberts, his work, and pre-order his new book at MatthiasRoberts.com. Now, let's talk about the story of Sodom. Okay, so in my experience, most people either haven't read the story of Sodom, or it's been a very long time since they've read it. So I thought it'd be a good idea if we just went through it, laid out the plot, let everyone know what's going on here. I think that sounds perfect. And one of the things that I want to point out is that it's really not just the Sodom story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which happens in Genesis chapter 19. It's also Genesis chapter 18. They're a unit in terms of the theological points that they make. So I think we should summarize both chapters. Okay, great. You want to, you want to kick us off? Angels show up at Abraham's tent, but he doesn't know they're angels. He invites them in. He gives them the best food and is all around an awesome host. So they tell Abraham who they are and that they're here to destroy the city of Sodom. Now, Abraham is not excited about this because his nephew Lot lives there. And so he pleads with them and they have this this interesting like bargaining session where he's just like, well, what if there's 20 good men? What if there's 10 good men? And eventually he whittles it down to five. If there are five good men in Sodom, the angels agree not to destroy it. So the angels show up in Sodom and again, no one knows they're angels, and no one helps them out. They're just travelers who are on the street. So they just decide to sleep on the street. Now, Lot comes along, sees these two strangers, and realizes that this is a very dangerous idea, and he invites them into his home. Now, the text says that every single man in the city, young and old, gathers outside Lot's home and demands the men to be brought outside so that they can gang rape them. So Lot asks them to instead take his daughters, but they refuse and they start to bang on the door and to force themselves into the house to take the men. Now, at this point, the angels have seen enough and they are so done with the situation. And so they blind all the men of Sodom and rescue Lot. And it's worth noting that once the men are blinded, they are still trying to get inside the house, which is wild. Yes. So obviously they have not found four, five good men. And the next day, Lot and his family get out of the city and the angels destroy the city, killing every single person in the city. So if you're listening to this and thinking, this is a strange story, you're not alone. Um, and there are, are a number of stories in the Bible that are strange. But this story has a lot of significance for us because this is the story from where we get the term sodomite, which has been used to refer to people who have sex with someone of the same gender for millennia. Helping us unpack the story of Sodom today is Ramel Parks Weekly. People think that 
affirming Christians take the Bible and just throw it out of the window. And I'm like, no, <laughs> not at all. If anything, many affirming Christians that I know take the Bible very seriously, seriously enough to not just read it and take it at face value, seriously enough to study it, to labor in it, to wrestle with it. Um, and I think that that's how every Christian should approach Scripture, if we really consider it holy, and I do. Ramel is a pastor and the author of several books, including Homosexianity, a book for people struggling to reconcile faith and sexual orientation or gender identity. And what's interesting is that Ramel didn't originally set out to write that book. So, so yes, uh, when I was growing up, I was I was raised Pentecostal, and you know, as many people know, Pentecostals are very uh, theologically conservative. Uh, even legalistic. And so I had a very legalistic view of scripture. Um, and even into my pastorate, um, same thing. Um, I did not believe in women. I, I believed in women serving in ministry, but I did not believe in women serving in leadership. Um, I was not affirming. Um, and so what I wound up happening is I decided to write a book about homosexuality because I was seeing at the time what I thought were two different extremes. On one end, you had uh, people who were saying, if you're gay, it's a sin, you're going to hell. And I'm like, well, I, I and you're not a Christian. And I'm like, well, I know that's not, I'm gay. I know that's not the case. I know that I have a relationship with God. That's ridiculous. But on the other extreme, I, what I thought was an extreme, I said, now there are people who say, it's okay to be gay. It's okay to get married to somebody of the same sex and God is okay with that. I'm like, that's crazy, <laughs> you know? So I saw these two supposed extremes and I wanted to bring you know, my perfect balance to it, which at the time was what people called side B, which I thought was it, was it wasn't a sin to be gay. But if I choose to act on it, if I choose to engage in sexual relations with someone of the same sex, that that's where the sin came in. So I was going to write this book and I started out doing a, a, a detailed Bible study in preparation for writing the book. Um, and I went in praying, OK, God, I'm going into this. I want to go in with a blank slate. I want to apply the same principles to this subject as I apply to every other subject that I study. And that's where I went wrong. <laughs> I chose to not just assume anymore, but to actually apply the same principles of study, which honestly, up to that point, I had never done. It's as weird as it is. I, I had always assumed that my existing belief was right. I had never studied it. Something that I get from people from time to time um particularly like church members, they'll just say, hey, the Bible is clear on the topic. Like, why are we even talking about this? It's like crystal clear. Like, look at Leviticus 18.22 or look at Romans 1, you know, um, crystal clear. So how do you respond to folks who feel that way? So my, my first response, and I tell people this, to always be on the lookout for the word crystal clear when it comes to how scripture is is how it reads. I don't think, honestly, I don't think scripture is intended to be clear because for me, at least, that implies a certain laziness on the part of the reader, um, that we're not engaging the text uh, deeply enough, that we're not, in, in some ways, not taking it seriously enough to go beneath just the surface of what it says and to really understand, to wrap our minds around, around it. So there are a lot of things that we could claim are very clear about scripture. And yet, uh, for me, at least, one of the best ways to combat that is to just give examples of other things that are equally as clear, yet the church does not engage itself in it anymore. For example, slavery, which was very clearly uh, uh, condoned in both, in both testaments. Uh, for example, the 
oppression of women, which was very clearly condoned in both testaments. Um, and so yet most churches today, most we hope, <laughs> you know, don't uh, support slavery. Most churches allow women to, even for those that don't may not necessarily allow them to serve in leadership capacities, that's bad enough as it is. But most churches do allow women to speak in the gathering, whereas scripture explicitly, Paul forbids that. They do not to open their mouth and even ask a question that are asked their husbands at home. So people are people, we're very picky on what we choose to believe is clear and that's problematic. If there was like one thing that you would recommend somebody who wants to learn to study the Bible, what is like one thing you would recommend them doing over the next week? Think of a topic, open your Bible, begin to look for passages related to that topic. But when you do, you know, consider yourself a a police detective inside of an interrogation room and the Bible is the suspect. Your, no, seriously, your job is to interrogate the text, ask questions about it, find out if there are any logical fallacies and try to work through them, figure out, okay, it, it, it seems to contradict. So how do we work this out? Ask questions of the, so, so as a more conservative theologian, I, I don't believe that scripture really contradicts itself. I think that our interpretations are very contradictory. And so when you come across something that seems to be contradictory, it's a perfect opportunity to dig deeper. But if we don't ask questions of the text, we won't ever even find those things out. So that's what I would suggest is is become an interrogator of the text. Ask a million questions about it. What I would really love for us to do for um, most of the rest of this podcast is talk about a particular scripture and have you kind of walk us through some of the points that you think are important. And maybe through the process, we can learn a bit about what it looks like to study scripture. So what we're going to look at is um, Genesis chapters nineteen, chapters eighteen and nineteen, especially nineteen. Um, one of the classic t- uh, passages, and the one that the word sodomy was gifted to us through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How wonderful! <laughs> How wonderful! Yeah, yeah. So I mean, literally, the word sodomy is used in a lot of like legal code has been used oh, yeah. to criminalize um, oh, yeah. any kind of affection between same sex partners. So, um, yeah, it's it's a it's people have done a lot with that word, and not necessarily related to Bible study. So help help us um, help us with that passage, and um, where did you start? in seeking to understand the meaning of the passage. So honest and, 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 you know, not to bring it full circle, but honestly, I started with interrogating it. I, I reread it. Um, and I said, okay, let me just kind of like not have any assumptions when I go into this. Let me just kind of just see what it's actually saying. And I reread it. And I'm very glad, I'm very glad that you mentioned chapter 18, because one of the biggest ways to interrogate the text is how did we get here? So rather than just starting in 19, back up a little bit and get some more of the context. So, um, because 18 does have some things to share. So, um, but yeah, that's what I did. I began to ask questions about the text. When I saw that um, uh, Abraham, not Abraham, when I saw that Lot, um, you know, offered this crowd that he was, you know, fully aware of because he lived there. And I saw him offer this crowd, his daughters. I began to interrogate the text. Why would he do that if he knew that this crowd was full of, you know, full of gay people? Um and if, if you don't want to incite this mob that's outside of your door, why offer them women when you know they're only attracted to men? Oh, my gosh. That's such a good question. I 
why did I miss that? Thank you. <laughs> and that, but that's the power of interrogating the text. You, it's not that you're interrogating it like, like as though it's 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 guilty of something. I think that God wants us to interrogate the text to ask questions of it because it brings us to deeper understanding and meaning. So um, that's one of the questions that I began to ask. Um, and, and, and asking that question actually led me all the way back to, I believe it's chapter 14 of Genesis, where the, the first time that Sodom appears, well, one of the first times that Sodom actually appears in the Bible, where it says that they actually went to war, uh, rebelling against a high king, and they lost. And so a lot of their people was, was captured and a lot of their goods and treasures were captured. And then, so by the time we get to chapter 19, we find that, that this is not just a just a regular city. These are defeated uh, people with something to prove. They're, they're, they're probably very um, paranoid about people that they don't know coming into the city because, again, they've just been humiliated in this, in this, in this war. So uh, once we begin to get to really create a profile for the city of Sodom, so that we can better understand who its inhabitants actually were. Um, there's a lot to that story that we just completely miss because we only focus on chapter 19. And by doing that, once we begin to interrogate the text, there are questions that we won't be able to answer until we look elsewhere in the scriptures. And this is something I uh, this is something that is so important. You say, okay, Sodom, what does that mean? How is that used and referred to elsewhere in scripture? Like, who are these folks? Like, that's a really good kind of basic way to approach things. And that's a good idea when you're looking to understand scripture as well. Like, what's an important word? Where else is it used? In the original language, which is pretty easy to find now online. Um, yeah, these are the types of questions yeah. Okay. So, what inference did you did you draw from from what you learned about Sodom and who they are? So, in, in finding out what led to what they did there in in chapter nineteen, uh, I, I certainly came to the conclusion that this was not about sex as we you know sexual passion as we might traditionally think. They were gay people. They wanted to have sex. Well, why didn't they just have sex with each other? being gay doesn't make you a rapist. So why would you want to force yourself on these people? So when you could consider the context of their having been in a war recently, then it begins to make sense that they're, they're uh, terrified. And they, and one of the ways to uh, prevent yourself from being viewed as weak is to send a message to surrounding areas that you don't want to mess with us. And one of the ways to do that is to victimize strangers in your midst. Um, and then one of the other ways of building that, building that, profile of Sodom, it's just, don't guess. The Bible is actually pretty good at telling us what it wants us to know. The problem is it doesn't always tell us in the same verse or in the same chapter, and sometimes not even in the same book that we're reading. So, and you kind of mentioned this, what does the text tell us elsewhere? And two places that I think are vital to, well, really kind of three, that are really vital to get a better understanding of, of Sodom is uh, the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel six. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna help do some of the legwork for for our readers. Chapter sixteen, verses forty nine through fifty, and that tells you exactly God is God specifically says this is why I destroy Sodom. <laughs> so you don't even, we don't even have to guess. He literally tells us, but right. nobody ever goes there when they're trying to condemn homosexuality because does it doesn't it say because they're gender. gay. It does not. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> and that's a problem. That's amazing. It's, you know, who'd have thought, right? And the other passage, two other passages, one is in the Gospels. Uh, I think that one place is mentioned is Luke, 
where Jesus actually tells people, when you go out there and you minister to people, if they don't receive you, shake the dust off of your feet and, and, and keep going. And it'll be better for Sodom than it was for that city. And the idea is there was nothing sexual about the context. The context was receiving strangers. Jesus is expecting that his disciples will be received when they go and travel and preach the gospel and that they would be cared for by those that they're preaching to. And so he's basically saying that this is a hospitality issue. And when we look in chapter 19, it really was a hospitality issue. These were strangers in their midst. And rather than treating them with care and providing for them, they treated them with cruelty and brutality. And one of the other things was uh, passages is in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 12. And if you just start reading, I think it'd be at verse one, really, and read, just read the whole chapter. It is an amazing indictment because Jesus, God, excuse me, through Isaiah is comparing the people of Sodom to the current people of, of Judah. And he's basically, you know, saying that they were sinning in the same way. One thing, clearly he never mentions anything about sexuality. But what's amazing is, and this kind of really gels well with Ezekiel 16, he really talks about people who are, number one, not treating people with kindness, not providing for the poor and the needy. These are people who are are greedy and lazy, and they're only looking out for themselves. They're not treating the foreigners or the strangers with kindness and compassion. And as I begin to really consider what the biblical indictment, I think it's amazing that when the Bible talks about Sodom, it, had, they, they, it has a totally different view than Christians today. And I'd rather have the biblical view of, of these people. And what's amazing, I know this is going to sound so bad when I say this, but what's amazing is if the word Sodomite actually was in the Bible, it's actually not in the, in the original Hebrew and Greek. But if it were in, in there, as referring to residents of the city, it would be referring to a lot of the people who oppose homosexuality. That same way of thinking, of treating people with cruelty, of creating outsiders and marginalized groups, that's exactly what God was condemning and using the Genesis 19 narrative to prove that point. But because we read it lazily, I, I keep using the word lazily and I don't want to be offensive, but because we didn't do the legwork of, of studying it, we begin to do treat this text, which was a warning against this, as a justification for doing exactly what it was trying to keep us from doing. that chapter 18 of Genesis is informative of chapter 19. Uh, would you care to expand on that a bit? So God is having this conversation with um, with Abraham. Well, before he even gets to the conversation, he says this thing to himself and he says, this outcry, the cry against Sodom has risen to me. And let me go down there and just see if it's just as, if it's as bad as I'm hearing, you know, hearing that it is. And one of the things that it's really telling to me at least is he makes this statement before chapter 19, which means that before we even get to whatever transpired in 19 and however we interpret it, something was happening. This city was characterized by something that was so abhorrent that there was an outcry against this city. And, you know, one of the things that I that I kind of say with a little joviality, but it's actually an accurate point, is... Gay people, if they're just gay and having gay sex, they're even if the sex is bad, they're not crying out to God about it. So, <laughs> so, so 
it's like I'm just I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying, you know. So clearly, this was this goes beyond sexuality and goes into some level of of cruelty that is actually causing an outcry to rise up to God. And so when we begin to look um, again at the way that the prophets, dis- and we don't, the problem is when we read that uh, in chapter 18, we don't know what is causing that outcry. We just know that there is one. But when we look at what the prophet said about the city, what Jesus said about the city, then it begins to fill in those gaps and tell us how exactly they were so wicked. And again, nowhere is sexuality mentioned. The only place that is sexuality, period, not even homo, but just sexuality, period, is mentioned is in Jude. Um, and I would open a whole other can of worms to even talk about that because it's... <laughs> okay. So in Jude, what happens is everybody focuses on verse 7 where it says that that likewise, in the same manner as these, the people of Sodom went after strange flesh. And so they're reserved for judgment. And what happens is people always read verse seven in isolation and they never again interrogate the text. So it says, in the same manner as these, well, just pause for a minute. Before you read the rest, you should ask, well, in the same manner as who? Again, we're interrogating the text. In order to get that, you have to back up to the previous verse. And in the previous verse, he talks about these angels who left their first estate. They rebelled and and we know that this is referring, and I, I don't know any serious biblical scholar, even the non-affirming ones, who don't agree that this is referring to Genesis 6, where um, uh, the angels made it with humans, women, and they had, they had these Nephilim or giants offspring. And so um, and so what Jude is saying, and this is actually hearkening to the book of First Enoch, which is not in our text, but he's quoting it, actually. Um, but he talks about how these angels left their first estate and they intermingled and had access with humans and God judged them. And then it says, in the same manner as these, uh, these people of Sodom were going after strange flesh. Now, very interestingly, it does not say they went after the same flesh, which in the Greek would be uh, sarkos heteros, or, or excuse me, uh, sarkos homoios, meaning same. Where we get homosexual, homo homoios, yes. It uses the word sarkos, which is flesh, and then heteros, as in heterosexual, meaning other or opposite. So we think, well, it's not, they're not going after the same flesh. They're going after other flesh, hetero, right, other. And then, and the interesting thing is when we compare it to the previous verse, going back to Genesis, and let me just say this quickly, verses six through nine in Jude, every single verse talks about some kind of engagement or interaction between humans and angels. If you look at it, every single verse. So why would he talk about that in six, in eight, and nine, but in seven, right in the middle of this context, throw in, oh yeah, homosexuals, and then go back to humans and angels. But when we look in Genesis 19, it actually is angels that are there at uh, Lot's house when they're trying to uh, uh, pursue them or, or rape them in, in this in this context. And so in Jude, the context is very clear that they did the exact same thing as happened on the days of Noah. And in Genesis 19, we see that borne out, humans attempting to have sex with angels. What we might call bestiality, human, the humankind engaging in sexual acts or attempting to, in the case of the Sodomites, with the non-human kind. But again, no, nothing about homosexuality. So could you unpack for us a little bit the overarching moral theme of these two chapters of um, which you refer to as hospitality? Because 
when we think about hospitality now, we think of whether you get offered some nice cookies or not. You know, like, like oh, somebody brought me lemonade. Like, that's great hospitality. This is not, you know, this isn't really that. So, so can you help us to understand how they viewed hospitality? Yeah, because the modern, as you said, the modern usage does not do it justice. So back then with many of the peoples of the world being nomadic, they moved from place to place. They were not city dwellers in a major way like we are today uh, or people who just stayed in one place. And so culturally, and this was not just in one group, but one in one place, this was the culture of the ancient world. Um, it was extremely important that uh, travelers were, were provided for uh, because it was known that you will be a traveler at some point as well. And so there was this, there was this, cultural expectation, a very serious cultural expectation that when you come across strangers, when strangers come to your door, it is your moral responsibility to provide for them. And again, this is not just an edict from Yahweh. This was, you know, worldwide at the time, but it was your, it was your obligation, your responsibility to provide for the strangers, to protect them. In fact, when Lot was, was arguing with this mob outside of his home, he never said, this is a horrible thing. These are men and you're men and that's nasty. He never said that. What he actually said was, these men have come under the protection of my roof. In other words, it is my responsibility to see to their safety. And so serious was this responsibility that he was willing to offer. Now, we again, today we read that and say Lot was a fool. And that's how I think. But to, in order to understand how he could possibly offer his daughters to this mob, it was because of how serious this obligation of, of, of protecting and caring for the stranger among you actually was. You can buy Ramel's books on Amazon or by following the links in the show notes. So I think the question we ought to be asking is, why? Why, when the Bible so consistently tells us the sin of Sodom is inhospitality, of not caring for strangers, why has it instead been used as a weapon against queer people? Thousands of sermons have been written on this topic, which means thousands of pastors should have been doing the legwork that Ramel just walked us through. But they haven't. Or they're like Matthias's dad saying that, okay, it's about inhospitality, but it's also about homosexuality. Except you just don't get that from the Bible. So why? Well, here's one reason. One of the things I think about a lot is theology and history and the way that the way people have historically thought about same-sex sex has informed the way that they've read the text. So when we come specifically to the issue of Genesis chapter 19 and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was really easy to read that text as a lot of gay people when the assumptions that were made about gay people was that they were recruiting each other or that homosexuality was something that one person could give to another person by sexually assaulting them. I mean, Steve's kind of chuckling because it, like, today people generally don't believe that. Like, they, they think that it's kind of crazy. But it wasn't that long ago 
that people made a lot of assumptions about what it was to be gay, which is the word they would have used at the time. And I want to play you a quick clip from Anita Bryant, who campaigned against civil rights for LGBTQ people. This is from 1977. Now, hearing this, you might think this is crazy. Like, how could people have ever thought this way? But they did. And knowing our history is is really important. In fact, it's something we're going to be diving into in future episodes because um, it has absolutely influenced how we do theology. Just biologically, that God made mothers so that we could reproduce. Homosexuals cannot reproduce biologically, but they have to reproduce by recruiting our children. And if you think about homosexuality that way, and, and people still do say that today, but it's more fringe. But if you think of human sexuality that way, and if you think that being gay is a choice, and it's a choice that that gay people recruit other, you know, children into, then it does make some sense to read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that way, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's been these assumptions about queer people that inform the reading of the text. And sometimes the assumptions have changed, but the reading of the text hasn't changed. Or the reading of the text has changed, but kind of quietly. Like, we just kind of don't talk about it anymore. And there's never been a real... I mean, I'm just going to use the, the Christian word that's the appropriate word to use for that. There's never been a real repentance that really says, this is what we did. This is why we did it. This was why it was wrong. And this is how we need to change. Right. Like that's the Christian process of repentance. And there hasn't been a real repentance around some of these theological assumptions that were made out of fear and ignorance to say, this is why we did that. This is why it was wrong. And to kind of really look at and reevaluate the theology. We have so much great content coming your way, but we need your help in order to make this happen. The most important thing that we need is people who can support us on a monthly basis because that just helps us to budget and helps us figure out how to best get the message out there. And for those of you who have become patrons already through Patreon, thank you so much a million times. And for those of you who are thinking about it, we've thought of something to kind of sweeten the pot a little bit. We want to really say thank you to those of you who become our monthly supporters. And these interviews that we're doing, um, Steve's an incredible sound engineer and he's edited them down and kind of distilled them to their essence in about 20 minutes. But we interviewed all of these people um, generally for at least an hour, sometimes quite a bit more than that. And there's so much interesting content that we can share with you and our patrons. So we're going to be sharing those raw interview files with our patrons for most of the interviews. And just as a thank you. Yeah, you probably wouldn't have guessed it, but in Matthias's interview, we disconnected three or four times. And so you'll be able to hear us struggling to figure out how to conduct an interview. It's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, especially like I just was gone for most of it. So some of you might love that. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, thank you again for everyone who supported our work, for everyone who has given to the GoFundMe. We are already putting that money to use. We have new microphones we're using and recording on right now. So thank you so much for helping us make that happen. Alicia and I recorded a whole thing about our Patreon without ever telling you how to find it. <laughs> Go to our website, openbiblepodcast.com, and click the link that says support our work. All right, back to our conversation.
So one of the really cool things that has happened after releasing episode one is I've heard from four or five different people who have either in an existing small group they're in or have kind of started impromptu small groups to have conversations with friends about the content we're talking about. It's been really cool to hear just about how people are discussing maybe theology that they had never engaged with. I had a friend text me basically saying, hey, I was raised with a conservative theology and I've been afraid to ask the question because I'm afraid of what I'll find out. Um, And so that could be an idea for you. If you have some friends who are interested in exploring topics around sexuality and scripture, um, we would love for you to use this podcast as a small group discussion point. And so we're going to help you out on that and start adding some questions in the show notes that you can get and use for your small groups that will help facilitate your discussion and dialogue. But here's one question to get you started. What is something that you have experienced a great deal of shame about? And did you feel safe talking about that with Christian friends? And now that you've heard a bit about Steve and I's story, if you are straight and cisgendered, try to put yourself in our shoes a little bit and think, how might that have been different or the same if the thing that I was experiencing was attraction and romantic desire for someone of the same gender? Huge thanks to our guests for joining us for this episode. If you want to connect with Matthias's work, the, the easiest way is by going to my website. It's just my name, MatthiasRoberts.com. Two T's in Matthias. Um, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, everywhere at Matthias Roberts. Um, and then I do have a book coming out uh, called Beyond Shame uh, that's releasing in early January. It's available for pre order now. It's about sexual shame specifically. Uh, the full title is Beyond Shame Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms. Uh, is for people who grew up within um, more conservative teachings around sexuality, more specifically purity culture, that, that kind of idea that if you do any sec- anything sexual before you are in a straight heterosexual relationship, uh, then God is deeply displeased and you're, you're a very dirty person. Um, for those of us who grew up in that context, what do we do with the sexual shame we've been given? And then how do we find a sexual ethic uh, that is is more inclusive, more open? Um, how do we kind of construct that for ourselves? Um, so that's the book. You can follow Ramel Parks Weekly on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ramel Parks Weekly. And you can also follow us. We are Open Bible Pod across the internet, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And we would love to hear from you. You can connect with us on social media or go to our website, openbiblepodcast.com, and send us a message. If you have questions, if you have topics you want us to explore, please share them with us. Finally, special thanks to my friends in the band Towers who let me use one of my favorite tracks of theirs on this episode. You can check them out in the show notes.